Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Rob the Face Radio Burgess, and this is the 80s Rewind Show podcast. On today's show, I speak to a man that was not only Adamant's drummer, but he went on to produce and co-write one of the biggest songs of the 80s. Stay tuned to find out who I'm talking about. But you know who it is. Here we go. Hey, I'm Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. Hey, everybody, this is Ivan from Men Without Hats. Hello, everybody, this is Francis Dunry from It Bites. Hi, everyone, this is Andy from Modern Romance. Hi, everyone, this is Charlene. Hi. This is Betty Seaton from Music E. Hi, I'm Nick Haywood. Hi, this is Kevin from Fiction Factory. And you're listening to the 80s Rewind Show podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. It's time, it's time to bring you yet another amazing episode. And now, welcome your host, Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello, my 80s Rewinders. I've got a fantastic show lined up for you today. How are you doing? I hope you're extremely well out there in 80s land. Before I start today's show, I've got to give a massive shout out to my fellow podcasters. Unknown Sounds with Pete Saxer, Living in the 80s with Robbie, The Glitter Bomb Girls with Robbie Ann, and finally, The Business Bunker with a fantastic Dante Healy. Check the podcast out. Link's in the description. They're absolutely fantastic. I've got to say a massive thank you to everybody that shared the show as well and liked the show and followed me on Instagram and Facebook. Yet again, the links are in the description. And also, if you want to watch today's episode, there's a video on YouTube. So you can pop on there and you can watch the interview. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all the platforms because I really need that. You know, they say that all the time. They say, you know, like and subscribe and it helps us out on that. And I thought that was just nonsense. But until you make one, you, you realise you do actually need that stuff. So if you can, like and subscribe, share the show, tell your friends. I love you forever. The 80s Rewind Show podcast, where the past meets the present. On to today's show. I've got an amazing guest for you today. I've got the fantastic Chris Hughes. He started as a drummer in Adamant's band and was producing them at the same time. Then after that, he went on to work with Tears for Fears and co-wrote one of their biggest songs, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. This is a fantastic in-depth interview into both of those careers and also his solo work and solo albums. He's a wonderful guy, he's a fantastic producer and he definitely shaped the sound of the 80s. Please like and subscribe and let's get to it. Like, were your parents musical? Were they into music? Were they music fans or were they musicians? Yeah, my both my parents loved. I mean, I can give you this story. It'll take a bit of time, but That's okay. my, you know, going back to the war, you know, my parents met in the war, and they used to go to um, individually dances. You know, like American bands would play, and you know, they're, they're from the north of England, so they'd, okay. they'd go to um, American forces bases and, and go to the big band shows and, and dance about, and they met. And they basically, um, their sort of relationship started on the dance floor. So they wow. absolutely loved big band music and jazz music and all sorts. And, um, yeah, when I was born, by the time I was born, um, they both had a fairly good uh, collection of records. And in my, I think my earliest memories uh, of really enjoying music in the house was them jiving around the lounge. 
<laughs> and so I think my earliest memory uh, or my my earliest sense of music that was that it was great. Yeah, it was this stuff, and everything was happy in the lounge, you know. So, uh, yeah, and you know, lots of lots of jazz, Duke Ellington, um, Errol Garner, Charlie Parker, Earl Bostick, Albert Ammons, loads of different sort of jazz. Miles Davis, and then lots of classical music. Um, you know, they were both into um, Beethoven and Mozart. Uh, my father liked. Um, sort of turn-of-the-century composers. He liked um, Webern and um, Schoenberg. Uh, he also liked, uh, well, they both liked um, Stravinsky. So it's quite a wide yeah. palette of stuff, you know. And the other thing that was great was by the time I was um, sort of old enough to to get records and, and bring rec- my own records into the house, they'd hear them and they'd like them, you know. So I'd have... <laughs> I'd have like the first couple of Beatles albums and a Stones album, and they 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 were going, yeah, this is quite busy. They kind of it was supportive. <laughs> it wasn't like, oh, this is annoying music to fuck my parents off. You know, <laughs> um, it, there was a general acceptance of music, and so you don't normally get that sort of support from parents, do you? Well, i i've I've tried to carry the tradition on. I mean, my kids, you know, they still. I mean, they're in their mid twenties. And, and older, and they still play me stuff. So, Dad, what do you think of this? And it'll be something like, you know, completely brand new. And I'll be, th- I'll be thinking, this is amazing. You know, <laughs> so that, that support and that understanding. I think, I think it's, I think it's a sort of a, an old cliche to say that your your parents hated your music. I mean, I, I know that happened, mm. um, but I know quite a lot of people who had conversations with their parents and did enjoy music. I mean. Um, my wife, she, I remember she was telling me she, one Sunday lunch, lunchtime with her family, um, she played her mum and dad um, Disraeli Gears by the Cream, you know, and and her parents are going, yeah, this is really rather good, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I think, I think the idea that um, um, parents sort of, I don't know. And another, another thing while we're on this topic, I've, I've worked with bands mm. Uh, in the studio and I've you know and there's obvious references when you're working and one might say well this section here is a bit like the Floyd or something you know Pink Floyd you know it's it's dreamy and it's got synths and whatever it is and you know occasionally there'll be someone in the band said oh yeah my dad played me Pink Floyd (laughs) you realize the generational gaps or generational closings are, are, are fantastically interesting it is my dad um my dad was a musician he was a drummer and uh so we were, we were a single parent family and they used to make me tapes every week. Brilliant. So yeah, he would, uh, we, he'd pick me up on a Friday and we would end up in a van going to Scotland or Devon or somewhere. We'd be yeah. all over the country, but he would go, Oh, this is, this is your almost like your homework. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. It was the same. So you put it on. I mean, I'm a, I'm an avid fan of Steely Dan to this day because of my dad. So. Uh, they are unbelievably important. Yeah. They're they just, just, they're wonderful. They're, they're funny. They're sort of, dangerous it's, it's <laughs> and smooth i mean it, it's such a sort of insane blend yeah, yeah. and when you, if you go online and start reading commentaries about perhaps what the lyrics mean that world is intense. it's too deep oh, it's way <laughs> too deep it's probably beyond the scope of this conversation but you know by the time you get into what's going on in third world man and things like mm. that you just think oh <laughs> it's, it's extraordinary. 
and, and, and gaucho. I mean, yeah. Oh, anyway, we can talk about <laughs> you then. Um, yeah, for me, they, they haven't really put a foot wrong. And they're funny, you know. People, yeah. People forget yeah, yeah. How, how hilarious they are. I mean, yeah. it's it's like you were saying, yeah. Like because of my dad, he would he would put lots of music on, and I would just ingest tons of music. And yeah. even today, now I listen to something that will come on the radio, and I go, I know that, but I don't know why I know it. And the chances yeah. are, he played it to me at some point, and then yeah, yeah, and it, it just got stuck into my head. My dad um, uh, was an artist, uh, you know, fine artist, and um, he taught uh, he taught in the in the post grad department, uh, London University at the Slade, and he took me um, to see the first performance of Steve Rice drumming in 1972. Wow. And he also played me Terry Riley's Rainbow and Curved Air because students of his had said, oh, you want to hear this? Yeah. It's really interesting music. And my dad just loved the idea of the systemic sense of it and sort of repetition. And he just got into the whole nature of that kind of thing and introduced me to it. And it stuck. You know, yeah. it's just a very, it's part of my spinal column, you know. I mean, that's what's lovely about the podcast. When I get to talk to different people about different things, yeah. I do look into what music might be influenced by. And I did see Stephen Reich. So I dug into yeah. some of his music yeah. and I found music for 18 musicians, yeah. the album. I, I, so I put it on and for people that haven't heard it, go on Spotify and find it and listen to it. Yes. And it's almost like ambient music with musicians. Is that a yes. good way of putting it? Yes. Um, and generally speaking, that record is regarded as a very good entry point because there's a large, there's a bulk of work mm. and um, I'd argue relatively easy to listen to. You know, yeah. some people go, oh, these pianos, they're a bit sort of, they go banging on and it's driving me nuts. There are people that have trouble. I have no trouble with it. I love it. But um, 18 Musicians is, is a belter. It's great. And I can hear yeah. a lot of influences later on in the Tears for Fears work, like with, the, is it oh, Marimbas? Yeah, yeah oh, I can hear the, I can hear some bits yeah. and bobs in that, like you said yeah. about influences earlier as well. Yeah. well. There's loads of people working today that have been heavily influenced by Peter Gabriel. I mean, sorry, by Steve Reich, for example, Peter Gabriel, you know, Samia Sinto, the, the way that starts um, is a kind of reference to um, Octet by Steve Reich. So there's, there's lots of people that have had, little moments and, and been influenced or paid tribute to the nature of that sort of systemic music. What sort of music really turned your head after Steve Reich? Was it pop music? Was it punk? What really made you? Oh, no, um, um, bef before Steve Reich, I was, I was, I was one of those kids that was, you know, growing up in the sixties and I, and I was hev heavily into the Beatles still wow. massively. So, um, and I'd say that they are without doubt the most, underrated band in the world because however much people love them they're still better than that people yeah you know they're they're a phenomenal entity and i could i won't piffle on about it now but the beatles <laughs> obviously stones just because the stones are just you know they're a stage band they turn up and play and they're amazing you know yeah kinks i liked you know the animals you know all those bands at that period you know mid mid 60s hendrix cream led zeppelin Fantastic. So that's the starting point. That those were the those were the things I I liked. For a while I liked Jeff Rotel, some of the earlier, slightly more folky things I liked by them. Aqualung's great. That's a good album. Yeah, I liked Aqualung, but I, <laughs> I, I liked the album Stand Up, which is their second album. Right. I, I really thought that was a fantastic record. 
I've only done thick as a brick and aqualung, so I need to go back a bit, I think. <laughs> if you've got the time. I mean, there's so much stuff to go and listen to. It's it's endless, you know. You can't hear everything, but yeah. It's wonderful stuff. So did you sort of naturally go towards drums or was there another instrument first? Was it guitar first or drums or? Um, first first instrument was drums. I had, I had and have continued to have guitars and basses and keyboards, but essentially... Um, the instrument I'm the most at home with and can play and be expressive is drums. Yeah. Drums yeah. and rhythm. Yeah. So, uh, that hasn't stopped. I, yeah, that's my was, main instrument. Yeah. Was Stephen like sort of music and influence on your drumming style, the sort of Burundi style beat drum? Um, the, uh, it's very interesting. The, the, the first, I think the first time which brings me on to um, meeting Adam and the whole nature of, you know, Adam and the Ants and the Burundi thing there. I I got hold of um, an album, and it's like, I think it's like French field recordings of Burundi drumming. And it's one of the pieces is the piece that was used by Joni Mitchell. She used the piece on Hissing of Summer Lawns. It's worth checking out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I And I just, I heard this. Uh, and I was absolutely mesmerised. And then I also heard it on a David Attenborough um, radio show, way back when. Yeah. Um, uh, on a David Attenborough show. And you can get, um, there's a BBC CD of him talking about music in Java and Bali and all these, and Africa and all these things. Amazing stuff. Um, and I just got absolutely transfixed with the nature of the of the pulse, the sort of carrier beat. And then the other bits of sticking and stuff that makes up the kind of data along the way. Amazing stuff. And um, uh, when I met Adam, one of the things um, he he said was, oh, I'm trying to get this group together and, you know, I want to have this sort of Burundi thing and, you know, it's really important. And he had a whole, you know, in fairness to him, he had a whole sense of what he wanted. And, and I said, yeah, I, I, know, I know how this goes. I know this beat. I have the records. I get it. Because you, you, know, I said, I, I know it. I understand. And um, I think that was um, a large part of why he and I sort of worked together in, in that in that version of Adam and the Ants. So, obviously, you produced Adam and the Ant albums yeah. as well. Where did the producer part come into your life as well? Where did this sort of okay? Area... So, so um, there was a point. I'm trying to think when that would have been. Um, middle seventies, I guess, where I was, um, doing a lot of experimenting with, um, tape loops and bits of early synths or electronic oscillators and EQ units and just basically faffing about at home. And I made, I made some, uh, recordings and, um, I went to play them to, to somebody at, uh, one of the record companies that was, um, Mercury Phonogram. And they said, well, um, you know, this is interesting stuff. There's, there's nothing, nothing much we can do with this. Um, <laughs> but, but you seem to be, you know, um, interested in electronics and, you know, it was the early days of synthesizers and that whole world was, and computers. It was all kind of opening up. And I think um, someone must have had the idea that, yeah, what he's made isn't great, but he seems to be like quite an interesting bloke or he's interested in, this field. And uh, I got a call um, from um, a guy called Dave Bates, who's a, a pretty well-known, well-respected A&R man. 
And he said, I've, I found this band and I, I fancy doing some producing. Do you want to come along and produce it with me? Because I think neither of us had, had done any producing, but we mm-hmm. kind of wanted to give it a go. And we thought, well, well, we'll do it together and see if anything comes of it. So he went off and did this. And the, the band was called Dalek I Love You. And they were from Liverpool. And uh, we brought the tapes back. And I was I had the recordings we'd, we'd made. And I was waiting to see the guy. Uh, and um, I bumped into a guy called Ian Tregoning. In, it was like a, almost like a dentist waiting room. I was you know, <laughs> waiting to see this A&R guy, and he was waiting to see someone else. And we got chatting. And he said, what have you been doing? What are you up to? And all this sort of stuff. And I said, well, I've got a tape of a few things I've been doing recently. Um, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I've got a tape. Here's a cassette. Uh, anyway, God bless him. He phoned me back about a month later, and he said, uh, yeah, um, didn't like the tape. Nothing on it of any interest to me, but I did enjoy chatting to you. (laughs) I know, I know, mad. Um, I've got a few things I'd like to play you. Maybe, you know, some work we could do. Come up to the office Mm. and um, in Camden and and, um, we'll hang out and I'll play a few things, which I did do. And he gave me some um, Adam and the Ants recordings and uh, said, do you, do you want to do something with this? There's no budget. So I sort of took the tapes home and copied bits I thought were copyable and EQ. It wasn't much I could do, but I yeah. messed around with it and brought them back. And on the day I brought them back, um, almost by accident, Adam came into the office and I I was there basically smoking gun, his tapes. <laughs> I was, I was, and, and he basically said, well, I don't know who you are and I don't know, but if you think you're any good, why don't you produce us? Why don't you do some recording? Let's go. And he was really impatient to get something recorded. Yeah. And that was my first meeting with him. And it was just one of those things back in those days. Um, this was like on a Tuesday. And then a Friday, we were down in Rockfield in Monmouth. Wow. Recording, recording Car Trouble and Kick, just a couple of tunes brought those recordings back to town and people were very interested. They're going, oh, this is quite interesting. This is kind of throbbing and poppy and punky and this 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 could go well. And there was quite a, a bit of a buzz about the nature of those recordings. So we we stayed together recording and, you know, doing Kings of the Wild Frontier and then Stand and Deliver and, and um, Prince Charming. Fantastic. I mean, yeah. Prince, Char- Prince Charming for me is, de- is a defining single. Um I've, I mean, I've still got my copy. It's right here. For, <laughs> and it's got my um, my little scribbly writing on it because I got Excellent. it when I was five. And I Excellent. still write the same way. So it's... <laughs> so there's progress somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what I love about that single is not only does it sound amazing, it's yeah. also like when I started the podcast, um, I'm in my mid-40s now, yeah. uh, mid to late to be fair. I wasn't sure if I should do it. And then it was one of those sort of things you think, yeah, am I too old? Should I bother? You know, did it. And then I, I was going through the vinyl. I found that record the one i just showed you i held it in my hands turned it over and it said ridicule's nothing to be scared of and i thought yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely right and it literally yeah. gave me the impetus to start the podcast it's quite extraordinary how um the sentiment in that song mm. hits people you know yeah. i mean over and over and over again uh, people have said to me you know it's something about that it comes on and it kind of makes me feel like a child again it makes me feel like i can do anything you know it's, it's quite it's quite inspirational you know 
It is. It's a profound record because, yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't be doing the podcast if it wasn't for that record. And it, I've carried that mantra my entire life, really. You know, yeah. really, don't worry about anything. Don't worry if people laugh. It doesn't matter. Yeah, and then, yeah. yet again, starting the podcast, I turned it over and I was like, yeah, you're right. Let's just do it. And I did it. <laughs> yeah, well, good for you. And I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that story. Yeah. Oh, That's thank great. You. That's great. But, it, you know, it's all, it's a very small atom in the, in the notion that music is incredibly powerful yeah. and incredibly important, you know. You played guitar on that as well? I did. Uh, I played acoustic guitar, yeah. You did. So you were playing the main rhythm part. Was that you that, and not Marco? There was... there, I think there was, there was two, forgive my memory here, there were two yeah. occasions where I played guitar. Um, most certainly and provable <laughs> is me playing acoustic guitar live. Right. You know, come down from the drums and play that. And indeed was playing it and the main rhythm part. Um, when we recorded it, I can't remember. I think it, it might have been Marco actually on the record right. me playing it live. Um, but I could be wrong. I might have done it. I can't remember. But I'll tell you one of the maddest things. I played the lead guitar part on the track Kings of the World Frontier. Did you? Yeah. And it was, it was ridiculous, really, because I was working with Marco um, on guitar parts and guitar overdubs. And um, basically, we were looking at how that little guitar tune part would go. Yeah. And at one point, he just said, oh, I'm a bit bored. I mean, just was his classic Marco because he, he he wasn't bored, but it was a fantastic thing to say at a certain point. It was always funny because um, you're not bored when you're making records, you know. But, yeah. You know, so I, I think what he meant was it felt a bit long and it, it wasn't coming together, and you know, it was one of those things. And and he said, "Oh, why don't you do it?" Wow. As, as a almost as a joke, <laughs> I, I, I played it. Yeah, and I, I believe the version that I played is what's on the record. Yeah, that's amazing. There so may, there may be somebody that would like to contradict that, but I'm pretty certain that's that's what happened. Yeah. So Kings comes out and does really well, and then did they throw you in the studio straight away for the second album? There's there's a kind of I don't know if it's a myth or what. I mean, you know, when everything collapsed, and I think Adam was pretty much exhausted and the kind of rise through from him, you know, he, he worked a long time, at, 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 you know, in his career. Yeah. And then when Kings hit and that combination of people and at that time, it, it sort of accelerated at a rate which was chaotic to say the least. Yeah. It was quite short lived, but nevertheless. So we were doing things like, you know, we'd be doing a show in Sweden and then finally had to fly back to do Top of the Pops. And then, you know, it was like quite chaotic, you know, like things were taking off, at, you know, a different track was successful in Germany. We should go off and do something there. And, you know, it was like trying to manage the whole explosion. Um, and that, that kind of burnt out, you right. know, it just was just the, the energy involved. Uh, and I think to answer your question, Adam said, Subsequently, looking back, if we'd had a break, if we'd had a little bit of time off, everybody might have been able to digest what was going on and, and recharge their batteries and sort of get a sense of what was going on. But it was just, you know, one day, then the next day, then the next day. So probably by the time Kings 
life cycle had kind of finished and the next record needed to happen, we were probably in the studio. Certainly Adam and Marco would have been um, told that there's more songs needed and, you know, write some more songs and, you know, yes, we're going in the studio. So, yeah, it was a busy time. Yeah. But it was also, you know, it was also an exciting time, you know, our, our feet didn't at the ground. It was just, it was mad. Was it, was you more interested in, like production at this point as well. Did you just want to go off and do more of that? Was the, was the, the sort of adamant world oh, taking over? No, when when my time in the ants started, I loved the idea of playing live mm. and and showing off and you know the whole regalia and the costumes and the noise and the big the big wow. I loved it, um, but you know for me, my I think the, what happened for me is as, as everyone was getting tired and exhausted and needing a break. I just th- I just thought, oh, I'd, I'd like to do more studio work. I could do with a, a time of not touring and not travelling and, and just kind of being in London and just maybe going to studios. And, and so, yeah, so I was, I definitely felt a shift of emphasis from performing live to wanting to be in the studio. Yeah. And also I wanted to play drums in the studio because that's, that could be a different, a different thing. You know, you can do it in sections. You can, you know, it's a different, world so yeah i was i was heading towards wanting to be in the studio fantastic and then goody choo choo's that the last single you did for adam at the yeah. time yeah uh, i did i did record after that with him we did um friend or foe i think was done oh, um, right. but but by that time uh, we weren't in the same unit as it were but yes um he we had lunch um and he said look I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, you know, stopping the ants uh, for the, you know, for the time being or whatever. Um, I, I want to pursue other things, but I, I'd really like it if, um, you know, you, you, we could continue working, and you know, I want to, I want to just trim it down, and it'll be just kind of you and me and Marco. Yeah. So that's exactly what happened. Marco and I and and Adam made Goody Two Shoes. Yeah. That's a fantastic track as well. I know, and the, the, the thing I'm proud of that track um, for a load of reasons. But one of the reasons is that we we put a set of drums in the middle of um, the big studio at Abbey Road. You know, the downstairs orchestral studio, number one, number one. Yeah, and um, uh, I just uh, we set the drums up, and I just head down. Belted through, it sounds like a drum loop kind of thing, but I just <laughs> yeah. came down, just belted through that and really liked it. I love the sound of it. I love doing it. And it was like, wow, you know, it's Yeah. So it was a, you know, sometimes you, 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 you do something in the studio and it, it works out for reasons um, slightly better or slightly bigger than you imagined. Yeah. Did you double check those drums or was that just the reverb in the room? No, that's a single take. Wow. One single take. Yeah. That is amazing. Because yeah. it sounds like it's like 50 drummers all playing well, at the same time. In, in, in um, Studio One, you've, you've got this natural um, reverb, which is bouncing around. Yeah. And I dare say, I dare say there's, there's, there's probably, you know, repeat and delay put on the track in, in, a, in a mixed sense. There's probably a bits of, you know, shimmery delay, which, which, creates that effect but no it's just a it's just a big old racket going on it's That's fantastic same room that same room that um the um gilmore's famous arpeggio 
on um, Shine On You Crazy Diamond. That was done in that room. That's fantastic, yeah. And, a lot of soundtracks as well, yeah. yeah. And allegedly, uh, all the Beatles shouting in the middle of Yellow Submarine <laughs> in that room. That's, tri- that's trivia for you. That's yeah, a, yeah. And, and Pink Floyd played um, badminton there in, in there, didn't they, in the 70s? <laughs> the fixed cars and stuff. And Stuka as well. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. So um, your time with Adam sort of wound itself up. Is this where yeah. Tears of Fears first showed up for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was... Literally, no sooner had I finished sort of um, working with Adam, um, I got a call to, to to meet these guys. They'd been signed, and um, you know, I think people at the record company thought they were going to be great. And you know, I met them. I um, I travelled down to Bath, which is where they were living at the time, mm. and um, hung out with them for the day and. We, we chatted about music and all sorts of stuff. And obviously there would have been discussions about, you know, whether they wanted to work with me and whether I wanted to work with them and what, you know, what all those possibilities were. And um, it, it worked out fine. They said, yeah, let's do that. And I thought, yeah, let's do that. And, uh, you know, once again, it was very, very quick. You know, we, we met, we, we chatted a bit and um, I think we probably had another couple of, conversations about which tracks and i'm sure the record company were probably quite you know they, they would have undoubtedly had a great sense of what they wanted to record and and they'd done they they'd done some recording before i met them right uh, and i think the general sense was they they weren't happy the band weren't happy with the recordings yeah i'm not, I'm not sure anyway obviously the label or whoever wanted to try and make a new coupling and we went off to uh, Brit Row, Britannia Row Studios in London, and recorded Mad World. Wow. We did Mad World and um, Memories Fade, I think it was, um, which is off their first album. Mm. Yeah, so we, and, and that was done, that was pretty quick. We, we went in and had drum boxes and flanges and you name it. And, it's, a, it's, yeah. it's a wonderful first album, but it is very disjointed as well. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not um, an album. Uh, I always my example is you know so there's certain albums that have self similarity. You know you put the record on and almost immediately you know what you're getting for the next forty minutes. Yeah. And there's a you know if you listen to say um, Joni Mitchell Blue that album, albeit some of the songs are written on acoustic guitar, some are on piano and some are on lap dulcimer I think. Yeah. You know, nevertheless, you get the, the the album, the feel and the tone of that record feels self-similar. So it all adds up to one big experience. The Hurting has got a few um, moods uh, that permeate through it, but it is it is disjointed in as much as they've written lots of different things. And, it, yeah. you know, it's much more of a sort of cracked marble than it is you know, something that just sets off and makes one sense. So I agree with you, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that they, they approached it from the psychological point of view, isn't it, about, is it Yanoff that wrote about? Yeah. yeah. And then the actual album sounds like a therapy session as well. It sounds like they're, they're yeah. doing that. Yeah, well, it, I mean, I look back on that record and, you know, I'm, I'm very fond of that period of time and, and how that record 
worked. Um, but there was there was a, a, a sort of fragility mm-hmm. in in what they were doing, you know, and and a you know where their confidences were and you know how they operated and you know and they were starting off they were learning on some level they were learning what they were doing yeah uh, but it was very obvious that they were incredibly talented mm. and you know profound thinkers i mean <laughs> they are the both of them are apart from the fact they're hilarious guys i mean they're very very amusing mm. but they have one of the things that i find incredibly annoying about them is they have unbelievable powers of retention they can remember things i've said <laughs> 10 15 years ago at an atomic level the pair of them are lethal when it comes to you know how things were done and you know what synth was what patch on a synth and kurt uh, is particularly good at remembering how the band played a certain track on a certain tour wow you know, oh yeah they're, they're they're extraordinary um yeah. so they're super bright they have incredibly good memories. Their, their intellect and how they calculate things is is brilliant. And as yeah. I say, they're funny. Oh, and they, oh, by the way, they're great musicians. <laughs> I mean, to me, they yeah, going back as we talked about earlier, they were the '90s Steely Dan for me, or the '80s Steely Dan. The way they made deep lyrics under pop music and just made yeah. you think about it. Yes, yeah. It was, yeah. yeah. Um, Roland would most certainly agree with that observation. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, it's, I mean, it, they're just—I mean, they're both—they're both, they're both um, pretty fully aware of Steely Dan's output and what those guys were up to. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, deep stuff over pop. I mean, it doesn't get any better, really. Deep stuff over pop. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And then, obviously, "Songs of the Big Chair" was the main album where you produced the whole thing. It yeah. seemed to be a more polished album, a more focused album. Was that the idea going into it that to make it? I think it had, um, I think it had quite a fractured start. Wow. You know, there was, I think there was a, there was a point where they weren't sure they wanted to, they may have wanted to produce, have someone else produce it. Um, right. They wanted to try something else. Um, uh, there was a period when it wasn't clear um, whether we were going to be doing that. Uh, right. And I think we started and thought, oh, I don't know if this is going anywhere, and not quite sure. And um, I think Ian Stanley, who who had been a mainstay within the, the team, um, he he I think he had a conversation with Ron and said, "No, no you're nuts. We, we, let's let's keep working with him. You know, come on, let's just just do it." And I think that conversation was had. We all went, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, okay, let's just do it." And then I think probably one of the one of the problems with the start of that record was that. Um, the record company, now I may be wrong, this is my opinion, this is my view of it. Okay. The record company wanted them to start making another album. Right. And there was some discussion about whether or not they had enough material at that point. Right. Or whether they had enough material which was going to be, like, successful material, <laughs> if, if you will. And um, I don't know how it happened, but the record got, we started making that record and... I think everyone was pinning their hopes on um, Head Over Heels. Right. That would be the track. And we started working on that record. There's various things we were doing, but Shout and Everybody weren't written. Right. When we went in the studio to to make that record. And 
Yeah, I, I know. And it's, it's crazy. And I remember quite a few discussions uh, saying, look, guys, we, we, we haven't got, you know, we haven't got enough material here. And it, it, it's funny how you, you know, you can have this sense that people know that and, and, and sort of there's discussions all around the topic. Yeah. And I remember Roland, um, he, he came in, he came into the studio one Monday morning and once again, Ian Stanley had said to Roland, Pl play, play Chris this demo you're working on, just play it to him. You know, first thing, play it to him. And, and Roland had um, a little um, LM2, Lin, Lin machine, drum box, and uh, a Prophet 5 synth. And, uh, and he just set them up. And he said, well, I haven't really got much yet, but I'll play you what I've got. And he kicked off the little um, drum box. It was just... And then he just went, hit a, a, a bass note on the, on the synth. And he just sang quietly, said, shout, shout. And he, and he sang me the chorus. And I basically went, lock the door. <laughs> Let's work on this. And it was extraordinary. And um, I have to say, it didn't come easy. Um, that, that. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Track took a long time to get right. Wow. So did he think it was nothing? Was he sort of blunt like that? No, 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 no. He, he, knew, he, he knew he'd written something great. He knew right. he'd got the, the, the sort of the essence of something. It was obvious, you know, it was just jangly drum box, one note, and he was just singing the, the chorus. Wow. It, it was obviously brilliant, you know, but as I say, um, that needed to be finished in terms of writing. And, you know, that needed to be recorded and produced and finished, you know, and that, that I have to say took a long time. Wow. That, that was months um, of working on that to get it, to a place. Was it sort of, when you say to go, well, was it just getting the sound right or the lyrics right or both? Was it just a mix uh, of... Uh, just about all aspects. 
you know, wow. Roland had the original idea, and then um, Roland and and um, Ian um, started work on on how a verse might work. You know, and it just yeah. evolved. And then we, you know, we put an, a sort of there was an extra section that needed um, looking at. We Roland and I worked on that. It was a kind of Fairlight synthesizer section. Well, the whole thing had Fairlight all over it, but there was a sort of middle eight section, which is uh, sort of something that Roland sort of composed on the spot, really. Wow. Um, and then I think at one point Roland said, oh, I just, we just need a break from how it all rolls along. We just need a, a little moment. And um, he and I were rattling like screwdrivers on a, on a keyboard stand. You know, it's just clank, clanking away. And he had the, the synth, do, 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 this mad, unrelated synth <laughs> just dropped in. And he said, yeah, that, that just makes a little break. That's really, really great. And then the next bit came in. And I remember saying to him, yeah, we need a guitar solo in it. And he went, you're joking. <laughs> I said, no, <laughs> come on. We got it to this point. It's obviously building up into something, you know. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I did, uh, you know, drum kit overdubs with the tom toms as, as the sections rolled in, and real kit comes in. I'm doing that, and uh, yeah, yeah, we need, yeah, we should have a guitar solo. And wow. and, and was going, uh, do we? <laughs> he was kind of, on one hand, on on one hand, I mean, he's phenomenal, so he'll always rise to the occasion and try things. You know, yeah, he, he's not the sort of guy that will just dismiss stuff out of hand. He'll you know, he'll have a look at it. And um, and so we ran the tape and we said, let's put a guitar solo here. And he basically started playing, I'll take the high road, you take the low road. <laughs> Just the tune of that solo. <laughs> it was kind of like, he meant it. It was powerful, but it was also tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Fantastic bit of duality there where he's he's meaning it and he's you know he's up on the mountain doing it all but, <laughs> but it's funny as well it's brilliant i love how sparse it is as well as a song it's really sparse there's not a lot yeah. in it i yeah. love that yeah just belts along it just sets up and belts along yeah yeah and when it hits, when it hits you it literally just punches you that's yeah. amazing amazing yeah. was that the idea of producing it you wanted to sort of keep it spare in the verses and then i think it i think it evolved it's it, it's it's hard to know it's very hard to know um, in retrospect if you go, if you say, oh, yeah, 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 that track turned out exactly how I wanted. It, it yeah. always sounds pompous and wrong. And, <laughs> and, it, and it probably didn't turn out, you know, what vision there may have been would have been quick. It would have been a quick set of responses. I mean, he came in and played that box and hit a, a note. And, and I went, wow. Yeah. You know, and, 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 Prior to that, obviously, I had no vision at all, but it, it evolved. It's something you think, oh, that that's taking that too far, that's too muddy, or that instrument doesn't help. And you try things out and you take things away and you go, that's better without the um, flute part or whatever it is. Yeah, and You kind of judge and make decisions along the way. Yes, and the screwdriver stuff reminds you of Stephen Reich again. It goes back to oh, the... Yeah, the rhythm's yeah. not... The actual rhythm's not dissimilar to an ant's rhythm, but it's just in a different, it's speaking in a different way. Oh, if it works, it works though. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, can we talk about uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World? Because you, you wrote yeah. a part of that, didn't you? I did. Yes. Um, 
<clears throat> so the the cloud we're in in terms of trying to get shout ready and finished and this notion that maybe there's another track we need mm. once again roland uh, was sort of walking around the place he had an acoustic guitar and every now and again he'd go ding ding just these two chords and um i'd say oh, what, what is that what he goes, nothing just ding ding so i wrote the notes down and i um went off to the lab and programmed a little shuffle beat and a little ticking beat and the chords just going goo And I'd, I had it um, on a computer in the corner of the room. And every now and again, when we were doing something, well, there's a break or people were going, you know, what are we up to? Or there's a sort of moment um, or someone's having a tea break or a sandwich or whatever. I just put it on and have this yeah. little thing just bouncing around, trying to get people interested. And Roland was like not bothered. And um, I kept saying, guys, this is great. We should we should work on this. This is, you know, this could be great. And it's literally, we had nothing to go on except this little bit, but I just felt it was something about it. And Caroline, um, Roland's wife, she came by um, one afternoon, a sunny afternoon, and um, she came in to say hi, and I put it on. And she said, wow, what's this? I said, it's great, isn't it? She went, yeah, this is really great. I said, tell your husband. Tell your husband. <laughs> you know, someone's got to understand how great this is. And uh, I think, you know, these stories become kind of, you know. Anyway, Ronan came in at some point, some days later or whenever, and said, okay, we could kind of, we could kind of, we could kind of work on this. I've, I've I got, and he had the two chords, and he said, and he just sang it. He said, it's kind of could be along the lines of everybody wants to rule the world. And I left it. I thought, yeah, okay, great. Let's, let's work on it. And then there came a point when uh, essentially um, myself and Ian, once again, and Roland decided to actually make it a song and make it work. Yeah. And from that point, we looked at how the bass would work, how the chords would go, Roland's, all Roland's guitar parts, yeah. bits, what the lyrics were, the whole thing, double chorus here, little intro, did a little there, and we just did it all. And whereas Shout had been on the desk and in the room for months trying to get it right, this was written and recorded from scratch in, in a week. That's crazy. I know, I know, and it just, it just oh. came together. I mean, it sounds like it was easy. I mean, I'm sure bits of it were you know, tough to get right. But essentially, it, it fell into place. I mean, and then uh, we thought um, Neil Taylor, who's a, a young guitarist floating around in Bath at the time, great, great player. Um, we said, why don't you come up and do, do a bit of a solo, put a bit of a solo mm -hmm. on the end of it. And we played in the track. And he, he just went, yeah, great. And he played t two solos, and what you hear is the first part of one solo, the second part of the solo, just like super quick. So that wonderful outro on everybody is is Neil, and it's he, he, he didn't even think about it. He just did what he did. And we loved it. We absolutely loved it. Yeah, it's, it's sparse that, again, isn't it? And that that was a, a almost like a Steely Dan thing, in as much as, you know, they would have guest guitarists and people they thought were 
yeah. on the scene doing stuff that they thought could do a bit of playing. And so we thought that was a, we thought Neil had come up and do something really lovely. And he did. Yeah. It's just mind blowing to think one of the defining tracks of the eighties was done in a week. <laughs> it's just... I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure there are other tracks in the eighties that were done quicker than that. Probably done, <laughs> done overnight, you know, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying subsequently, oh, and it only took a week. It's really with reference to how long shout took. So it yeah. was quite nice. To, it was quite nice to come off the back of shout and just do something that came together pretty quickly. That's fantastic. And after that, yeah. you worked with Peter Gabriel for a, for a track, yeah. is that right? Yeah, I, I worked. Um, well, I've I've done done various bits and pieces. I did um, when he was doing so. I came over and um, did some um, drum programming on a track called Red Rain. Oh, yeah. Wonderful song. I know, amazing, amazing piece. And um, as I understand it, the the piece, Red Rain itself, was in the recorded version they were working on, was in, not in pieces, but there weren't, I may be wrong, but there weren't clearly defined sections of how it was moving through the track, or at least that's how it felt like to me. And I got invited to go down and um, try and map out um, a drum part or parts um, for the entire track. So I sat there and thought, well, this could do this and program that, and this, maybe this could do this and program that. And, but there was a lot on the track. I mean, you know, I was listening to an amazing hi-hat track by Stuart Copeland. Wow, yeah. Oh, amazing, amazing. And, there were, you know, obviously on a lot of Peter's stuff, there's – there are amazing players all doing different things and drummers and you name it. So I was just in amongst it <laughs> doing that. But, you know, he, 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 he did credit me for doing all that. So it's, you know, got, and then I worked on some sort of um, almost like cloud generated drum parts I'd played for another mm-hmm. piece on one of his albums. And, um, and then I worked on the, the piece that ended up on the, Diana record. There was a tribute album, right. and he and I worked on one track. And it's it's sort of basically just the two of us. That's awesome. Yeah, That's it was awesome. it was great. I mean, you know, I, I kind of I kind of knew him from being in Bath, and you know, I've met him a handful of times. So it wasn't like I just went into the studio. <laughs> I I spent time with him. So and it yeah. was fun. it was fun to do. That's great. And then right at the end of the 80s, you got to work with Paul McCartney on Motor of Love. Is that right? He had virtually finished Flowers in the Dirt album. Mm. He'd done a lot of the sessions with um, Elvis Costello. They'd, done, they'd hung out and co-written some stuff. And there was, that was kind of one of the mainstays of that record. And uh, he, was, he was sort of trying to finish it off. I think he had other things or there was a deadline or whatever. And he had... Um, this track, Motor of Love, and um, he basically what really, really wanted to put it on the record, but I wasn't sure he'd have time to to do it and finish it off, and he'd been sort of toying with it for a while. And um, I said, yeah, I, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to work on it and see if we can get that ready for your deadline sort of thing. Yeah. And I got sent the tapes over, and, and um, I was in a little studio in Fulham, and I was listening to it. And I was thinking, this song 
uh, is missing like a middle eight or, a, you know, some kind of, you know, moment away from the main stay of the song. Maybe it's a middle 16, maybe middle 12, but it, it definitely needs something. And I was working on um, um, safety copies, so it didn't matter if anything got erased or chopped or messed around with. It was just something for me to toy with. So I, um, I basically got a, a little drum box and um, essentially recorded a drum box and cut in to the two-inch master, albeit it's a copy, 12 bars of, of just a beat where I thought this section should go. Yeah. And Paul turned up um, and I said, I've just I've, I've put a landing strip in the middle of the track where I think there could be a middle 12 or a middle eight or whatever. I think it was 12 at the end of the day. Anyway, um, and I just think maybe there's something that could happen at this point in the song. And he said, okay. Uh, and we set him up with a little keyboard. He said, uh, yeah, just just run it down. And we, we, dropped, uh, we dropped him into record at the start of the extra piece of tape. And he just sort of hummed something and played something and then finished and it came around. And he, as he finished, it joined in with how the track was at the other end of the wow. end. And I, I couldn't believe it. And he said, well, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I do. And it was just like extraordinary. I mean, the level of the guy's, uh, well, obviously everyone knows how talented he is, but to see it in operation that quick and with yeah. such confidence and just with such flow was amazing. And um, it went from there. It just it was just a joy to, to sort of record the track and get it right. And, you know, we went to his place in, in uh, Sussex, I think. Yeah. And uh, sort of finished the track off there. I think it was mixed. I forget where we mixed it. Uh, That's crazy. And on anyway, a personal yeah. level, yeah. Was it was it crazy for yourself sort of working with a man that influenced your music as well? Were you a bit sort of overwhelmed to start with? Or? You, I, well, uh, it's a strange blend, actually. I mean, what was lucky for me was that I'd, I'd met him at Air Studios quite a handful of times. And it was, all, it was always very pleasant, always, you know, fun. And, you know, he'd make some little comment. And he was just very, very affable and very friendly. Um, but, not, you know, nothing more than that. Just a quick hello, he'd put his head around the door. And, you know, and as I said to you, he, you know, he did invite me in to listen to one of his mix downs, which was lovely. So by the time I ended up working with him, I'd had a little bit of a sense of, you know, how he is. Yeah. Uh, which helped immensely, you know. But once you start work, you kind of, you kind of forget about that. And you just start working with the person and they're trying to get, you know, they're trying to get what they're trying to get done done as well as possible and in the back of the in the back of your mind you're thinking well you know paul has obviously recorded so much stuff knows the process has recorded himself on his own done solo things you know he knows about engineering he knows about the whole world and yet here and now he still wants someone to help he still yeah. wants the producer to just be in there going well that's good Could try this or discuss and hang in there which is what i which is what i did and um you know, I found the process to be amazing. You know, I really, I mean, really enjoyed it. He, yeah. I mean, even his solo albums he recorded himself sound amazing sonically, don't I, they? They're... I know. I mean, he's, he's, you know, as I said before, he's more amazing than people realise. 
<laughs> he really is. I can imagine that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's yeah, profoundly good at what he does, you know. And also, you know, in fairness, he he's brilliant and had many many years of putting people in a, in a sort of relaxing people, you know. Yeah. So he, he he's he's very welcoming and just wanting to get on with stuff and. I mean, he's our modern-day Mozart, they say, and I, I don't disagree with that. I think he's an absolute genius. Yeah, yeah. I know, he's... he's... They, I mean, people like Paul McCartney and David Bowie, they scare me. They're like, they're, as if they've been dropped in from another planet and just well, said, yeah. mingle with these humans and make yeah. genius. And <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's a few people There's a few people like that where you think, this is profoundly different from the norm. You know, I think really? that about Miles Davis. He just, he just a- arrived at a place and was just light years ahead for me yeah. you know so with paul we finished we finished the track off <laughs> and uh, and then for reasons i can't remember exactly what happened but he played me his version of figure of eight which was set for the record and is still on the record and um we got into a discussion and i said you know it's this great track it's kind of like you've done it in a slightly sort of throwaway kind of style which is wonderful but i think this is a single yeah and he sort of said well you know sometimes i can you know sometimes it's obvious a track could be a single sometimes it's less obvious but if you think it could be you know maybe we could work on it so we we did so there's a single version and there's the version on the album and i did um motor love for the album and figure of eight as a standalone single um yeah and then after that um he 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 went off somewhere um, and uh, phoned me up and said, could I attend the cut? And we talked about the running order of the record and I, I was at Abbey Road and attended the, the cut. And That's crazy. And that was it, yeah. Uh, can we talk about your, your first solo album, Shift? Oh, by all means, yes. And uh, so what was the influence behind that? I, I know the answer, but I, I'd love to hear it in your words. The, the, thing, the thing was, uh, it, it was... <clears throat> two things. It was a period where I'd done a certain amount of productions and I'd worked with other people and you kind of commune with other people, which is wonderful. And it was just something I thought, oh, I just want to, sp- I don't really want to be in the studio in the conventional way. I just kind of want to do something, do a project of my own. And, uh, you know, at that point I was still listening to, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of um, Steve Reich and other sort of modernist composers and music and I thought yeah I'd really like to have a little look at um how these pieces work you know they, they, they have phase patterns and things shift and move against each other and so I got a load of scores of of pieces he he performed and recorded and um I sort of took the scores apart and, and started to program things just to hear how things were shifting and how they would work and eventually I thought actually I could some of this is really enjoyable to listen to. You know, I, I, I could probably make a record of this. And it mm. evolved from there. Um, and, you know, bits of it I'm very proud of and very pleased with. Um, other things I think, well, I'm glad I did them, but they're not, you know, the definitive version of, on any level. Yeah. Because um, actually <laughs> it's an album of cover versions. <laughs> <laughs> you have to look at it that way. Um, but I did, one of the, a moment in my career was I did um, go and meet him. Oh, wow. Uh, I met him at his, his apartment in, in, uh, in New York. 
and um, which was, you know, fantastic. And I, I played him various pieces I've been working on of his, you know, yeah. and uh, you know he was very, very charming and, and delightful man, uh, and brilliant to to listen to. And he sort of after I'd played a few things, um, he said, "Right, okay," and, it was, and I, I was thinking, <laughs> "Right, <laughs> where, do, where do I go from here?" And I said, "I said having." had a look at the scores and, and experimented and tried a few things out. I've done a set of variations, which are, you know, essentially your writing, but there's kind of, I've done things. And he said, yeah, yeah, play me, let me hear. And I played him two short pieces and he went, great, great. <laughs> <laughs> Reached over the table, shook my hand, he goes, follow me. He took me into his back room where he's got like marimbas and books and albums and all sorts of stuff. And he said, have you heard this? You might want to listen to this. And do you know this? And, and oh, have this. And he gave me, and, it, you know, I, I treasure it. He gave me a fanfold, massive artist-proof, handwritten print of the drumming, of the score for drumming. Wow. With instructions on it and everything. And he said, yeah, you might want to have a look at this. And actually, I, I came back to England and studied it and then, started work and so there's a fair amount of that of shift that's based around that manuscript and i'm you know eternally grateful for him it was lovely for him to spend the time you know yeah i mean it's not very often people get to meet their idols twice <laughs> I, I know can we talk about your second album as well that was your yes. latest release wasn't it 2017 yes is it called irianic is that right it's called irenic Irenic uh, life. Yes. Sorry, I was. I've been practicing that all day, yeah. and I still yeah. get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, in America, um, they have the sense of leaving the e off the front, so it's, right. it's, it reads ironic, and it, it it's um, you know, like um, in in sort of Greek mythology. I'm I'm not gonna wax stuff here, but you know, you have things like um, Hellenic, as in pertaining to Helen. Irenic is pertaining to Irene. She was a basically, I believe, a goddess of uh, the need for peace. So ironic life is a life which you follow, which is to do with being peaceful. Yeah. It's all about calm and peace. So ironic life is is opposed to erratic life, which is like chaos and where your head's full of jazz and feathers. Ironic life is a life that you follow, which is calm, considered and reflective. So that's essentially... Um, how that how that name came about? Does that Excellent. explain that? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, it's just I yeah. just can't pronounce it because I'm a ironic, but <laughs> as, in, as in like Irene. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love the album. It's it's well, sort you. of no, it's great. It's soundscapey. It's kind of sinister in parts as well. Yes. I kind of got a, yeah. a foreboding thing, and I love uh, safe warm sun. Oh, it's great! Like, yeah, yeah, great. That's, it, I'm, I am the most proud of that. Yeah. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, it's what, what I like about it is it's it's kind of if you don't mind me saying so it's kind of an eerie journey and then the yeah. safe warm sun at the end is the sort of oh, it's okay now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, yeah. and well, I think I think without once again without waxing on, I think the thing about that track was that as I was doing it, I was thinking this isn't an easy ride. This isn't straightforward and lovely, lovely and dead easy. It's a little yeah. bit tough to get through on, on some level, and um, that's probably worth it. You know, at the end of the day, it's still okay. Everything's fine. It's a safe end. It's all warm. The sun's there. It's all going to be great. And it's kind of, it's got this 
hopefully this rather childish optimism wrapped up in an adult sense of, yeah, actually keep your eye on things because things yeah. are never quite as straightforward as they seem. So it's a, it's a, it's the adult and the child in me wrestling with that piece, essentially. You, I think. Yeah, I mean, you can hear that. You can hear there's there's a like a tug of war going on to a degree yeah. as well. My daughter, um, uh, she's very fond of bits of it. Uh, mm. And she says, Dad, uh, some of this is so melancholic. Yeah. Oh, it's so sort of, you know, lost and found. And um, I, d- I didn't realise at the time, but I can listen to it now and go, yeah, actually, in, in parts, she's right. I yeah. didn't feel particularly melancholic, but that must have been some part that was coming through, you know. That album's not a bundle of laughs. You know, <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not Jollity Farm, you know. But, but I mean, I'm, you- I'm proud of it. Yeah. I mean, it's great. You can hear the Stephen Reich influence again, but you can yeah. also get sort of a music for airports by Brian Eno vibe yeah. going on. There's a bun- yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that's kind of of its time. Yeah, yeah, but it's lovely. So it's a wonderful j- musical journey. I put it on with my headphones and I went for a walk just with it on. Wow! And and I and I realised I'd walked and walked, and then I just got to the end. I was like, oh, I, like, and I kind of phased out. It was it was yeah. wonderful because it, it yeah. took me away when I was walking. Wow! So it was, well, that's, yeah. that's wonderful to hear. Thanks, Robbie. <laughs> no, honestly, it's, it's great, yeah. mate. Are you going to work on any new albums? You got anything yeah, else got, coming up? I'm working on two of my own records at the same time. One is, um, I suppose you could say it's. Uh, I mean, if you heard it, you go, "Oh yeah, same guy that did this and this." So it's 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 carrying on a, a kind of sense of what I want to do. Um, and then there's another record which is kind of um, there's a jazz element. Uh, which just won't lie down and go away. And so I'm, I'm working on a record which is half electronica and systems and sequence and stuff and half crazy-ass jazz, nice. um, which is not coming easy, but I, I think it's uh, something I need to do. I want to do that, yeah. Will there be a tour of those albums, do you think? Would you tour no, those? No, I, have, I haven't um, considered that. I think, if I'm being honest about um, touring... I think it's it's possible I might do a couple of gigs, you know. Awesome. I invite friends to help me do a performance and then, you know, invite people. Yes, that would appeal. Um, but a tour would be a little... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a adventurous at this point, yeah. And is the um, track Remembrance going on those other two albums? Because that was your last single, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. No, that's that's an absolute... That's an absolute um, standoff piece. Um, and uh, I, I think it, I mean, I think the thing that um, made me do that is that I was quite interested in the idea of, um, you know, John Cage did a piece, it's essentially about silence. And I was drawn to how supposedly quiet the moment of silence between the guns and Big Ben, and then the end of that moment of remembrance. And it's actually extremely noisy. And yeah. as an ambient piece, there's, if you listen carefully, there's people down the road shouting at each other, there's birds, there's planes. There's a whole bunch of stuff, and it's got this pseudo-silence, which is, you know, it's profound because we're, you know, it's about remembrance and, you know, it's a moment. Um, and I also was drawn by the fact that it's far from silent. So I was just enjoying that. And then the piece of music at the end, which is, you know, 
I think to be taken seriously is very mutated. I've done some piano in with it and, you know, it's, yeah. it's quite a mutant version. And it's, I suppose it's my, there's a duality here because I've got immense respect for people that went to war mm. and died or were, you know, that had life-changing uh, injuries or whatever. I've got massive respect for people that went and did that. And I've got a fairly strong loathing of people that are warmongers that kind of want war and yeah you know hawkishly mess the world up mm. you know? so um the front part of that is about a, a bit of respect for people that went to war and the second half is this kind of ugly fuck you to the people that think war is a great idea so that yeah. that's, that's essential without going on and being over profound that's essentially and i just had to make that track it's, i mean it's great it's, it's a wonderful soundscape if, if i can use the word soundscape yes I you think can. It's, it's it's a beautiful yeah and it's it, you can hear it as you're going along it, it goes from one part to the second part yeah and you can hear yeah it's it's a wonderful piece of work thank you thank you I no it's, it's very interesting <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. um if we could sort of just um ask you a question about sort of analog and digital recording yeah. wise, which, which did you prefer to use today? And if you had the digital stuff back in the eighties, do you think the records would have been the same? Very good. Two, two questions in one. Um, yeah. These days, virtually everything I do is in the digital realm. Mm. Ease of operation, quality of tech. The, it's, you would say it was the sort of industry standard. To have something yeah. like a Pro Tools or a, a Logic, or there's a load, but you know, essentially, you'd be working a, a, a digital workstation, which I do. I do it in my own study, and I do it in my own studio. I came up through analog, you know, yeah. two-inch reels, and you know, and then mixing to quarter-inch or half-inch tape. So I, I love how things can sound uh, in an analog world, you know, yeah. and, and I love vinyl, you know. Um, but digital is just convenient and covers most of the things you're going to need. It's far from perfect, but they're again, nor is analog. They're just, they're very different. Yeah. You know, occasionally I'll have a piece of, there'll be a piece of synth work and I'll think actually I could run that out onto a piece of quarter inch and, and, and enjoy what that sounds like and then feed that back into what I'm doing. I've done that. Mm. But having said that, there's, there are a lot of good tape simulator plugins yeah, you know, there's digital electronics which will give you that um, audio impression, and that might be enough. You know? Yeah, yeah. So you're not too fussy about the hands-on approach if it comes down to it. No, I, I, I would make judgment. I would think this could be better like this, and I want to pursue it in this way. Yeah. Or no, that's fine. That's you know. I mean, I'll tell you an argument. I have uh, discussion. Let's say <laughs> with people about. Um, They'll have a track and they'll say, "Oh, it's got to have a, it's got to have a piano in it." And you think, "Yeah, fine," uh, and it's got to be a real piano. Right. You think, "Okay, probably that's right. Let's let's pursue this." And I'll say, "Well, why don't we why don't we um, map this out with a keyboard MIDI piano first and see whether you know how the chords are working, what the general shape is, and how that evolves." And by the time you've done a bit of work and you know messed around with the MIDI of the performance and, you know, done all the things you might do digitally. Um, 
you can get to a place where people go, yeah, surprisingly, okay, but I want to use a real piano. And you go, fine. So then you, you know, mic up a real piano and you get the whole thing and you start doing it. And all of a sudden, you're thinking this piano, this real acoustic piano is amazing, but it's too big. Mm. It's actually too real and it's, it's too overbearing in the piece. Yeah. So there's this little place where you're going, yes, of course, the purist would say, use a real piano. And the practical might say, actually, this digital piano is doing a better job of what pianoness does in this piece than a real yeah. piano. And that, that conversation, discussion, argument rages. Some people have no part of it. And some <laughs> say, yeah, actually, you can judge and make a decision which is the most appropriate for whatever reason. And yeah. that has to stay open because I've obviously used both loads of times. Mm. So there's an argument for analog, if you like, and digital. Yeah. That's even before you start thinking about how you're going to record them. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And, you know, there's versions of that with things like, um, you know, real drums. You know, you get yeah. drums that are well-tuned in a good room with some good microphones and some good compression and someone who knows how to record. And it can yeah. sound like the best thing you've ever heard. But on the other hand, you know, you can hear certain music where you think this electronic kit is so exciting. It's yeah. so pumped up and doing the right job, you know. Yeah, I mean, 100% of the 80s records were electric kits, weren't they? So it's... Loads were. And also, yeah. uh, just over 100% of them had the snare too loud. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. If, you could, um, if you could be remembered for one piece of work, out of your body of work, which one would it be? My word. Um, that's, a, that's a tough one. I mean, people do know um, the fact that I was involved with Tears for Fears mm -hmm. and they do know I was involved with Everybody Wants to Rule the World. So even if I was to try and dissociate myself, which would be pointless, that one is something that I'm, I'm associated with. So I'd probably have to say that. Okay. You know? But there, yeah. there are probably tracks I've done where that may not have been successful on any level that I've been thrilled with and proud of. Yeah. Bits of experimental stuff, bands you never heard of. There, there'll have been things where I've thought, oh, I've achieved something there. That's, That's a landmark, for probably for no one else. But yeah, so there's probably quite a few pieces. But as for being remembered, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm in the to be remembered gang. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. To be yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks for talking to me today. It's been amazing. If um, thanks, no, no worries. If people want to find out about your and your music, where's the best place to go for that? Um, uh, I've got a website which is Chris Hughes. It's pretty easy to shake down. Uh, that's easy. You've got a, a sort of record company thing, which is Helium Records, which you can find certain bits and pieces on. Um, I've got a big presence on Spotify. If you want to just. Have a little thumb through a few things. You've got a wonderful playlist on there. I'll put that on the link in the description so people can go through the work. Great. And I'll put your last solo album as a link as well. Thank you, Robbie. That's fantastic, mate. Thank you for joining me on this edition of the 80s Rewind Show podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe and share the show as much as you can because I'd love you for it. And join me next time where I speak to Dante Healy of the Business Breaks podcast about finance in the 80s. Until then, keep yourself safe. Ta-da! <laughs> was produced, edited, and presented by Robbie. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review.
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.